Welcome to Dire Trip, where we deep dive into all sorts of spooky, horrific, or just plain weird crimes, lawsuits, and strange happenings all over the world. Without further ado, let's get into today's story. A woman in Long Beach, California was stabbed as the police stood nearby just as she was out of sight. This strange crime resulted in both an investigation and a trial that ended up being just about as strange and ridiculous. Lynn Let me start off by saying that when I make videos about Japanese cases, a lot of people ask me why and how I learned a new language. I originally started learning to study abroad and just kind of stuck with it after that. I learned through more traditional means, but I also used a lot of different apps along the way. When it comes to language apps, Babbel is at the top of the game. One of the most important things when it comes to learning a language is conversation practice, and when you're not in a country, it can be pretty difficult to come across. Babbel helps by teaching through using real-life language and dialogue with lessons written by real-life teachers. After three weeks, throughout these 10-15 to 15 minute lessons, you can already get started speaking your new language. You can decide how to learn your new language by using podcasts, live classes, games, or more. I've been messing around with learning Turkish, so hello to the Turks out there. Merhaba. Learning a new language can really be a perfect New Year's resolution. So check out Babbel's offer in the description below to get 65% off of your subscription. Thank you to Babbel for sponsoring this video. Schockner, age 50, was a woman living in Long Beach, California, along with her 14-year-old son. She had previously been married to her husband, Manfred, and technically still were on paper, but they had been undergoing a legal separation. It seemed to be going about as amicable as a divorce can go. They were still communicating often, near constantly, and he still continued to help out around the house. She'd recently co-signed on a second home for him so that he could still live nearby about a quarter mile away and see their son as often as he could. Manfred was a man that described himself as a conservative investor with numerous trust accounts and bank accounts containing millions of dollars. So, in other words, rich and anything but humble. Some of those bank accounts were his and his alone, some were owned only by Lynn, and some of them were owned jointly. It was a pretty mixed bag. One day at around 11 a.m., Lynn's neighbors, the Cannons, called police when they noticed a suspicious-looking man loitering around the neighborhood after he exited a dark sedan that left without him. At best, it seemed like the man wasn't really welcome at any of those homes, as he shuffled up and down the street kind of aimlessly, not really going anywhere in particular, but also scoping them out pretty hard. Police showed up and began looking for the guy, but he wasn't in plain sight anymore. Thinking that he may be in one of the yards behind the homes, the police came up to Lynn's fence. Noticing that the gate was locked, they went around to the front door to ask her to unlock it so they could check and see if the man was in there. Trying to calm her dog, she told them that she would meet them out back and close the front door. I mean, obviously no one wants their dog attacking a cop of all people. One officer went to the backyard fence again and waited for her to show up and unlock it while three other officers waited at the front door. And waited. And waited some more. Until it was abundantly clear that she wasn't coming back. Needless to say, this could be seen as either concerning or suspicious, depending on your viewpoint. Then shortly after, the officers in the front of the house got radioed by the officer in the back of the house saying that he caught their suspect climbing over the fence in the backyard. 
In this moment, the debate between suspicious and concerning tilted more heavily toward concerning. The officer at the front door decided to break into the home and check on the woman. And their concerns were valid. She was dead. It appeared that she had been stabbed, and officers concluded that she had been stabbed just as she stepped outside the back door, with officers waiting at both the front door and the back gate. The officers were in shock over the event. Never before had they had someone so near them in vicinity get killed just outside of their reach. It was the first time in a long time that counseling was necessary for these officers. The man they caught was a man named Nicholas Harvey, a 22-year-old gym-goer from Port Huenime. While getting caught jumping the fence into the alley, he was found with a knife and a pocket full of jewelry. The case appeared to be a very brazen, very odd, potentially very stupid robbery. However, things got more unusual as the police pressed for answers. After he got taken into custody, he quickly admitted to the police that he had been paid about five grand to murder the woman and stage the scene to look like a robbery. Selling the jewelry that he took was just kind of an added bonus. Truth be told, when I got there, I didn't want to do it at all. When I was sitting there, I was sitting actually at the, the bedroom door, and I was... And after more questioning, the police were able to get a single name out of him. Frankie Haramijo. This was the man who had hired him. But who was Frankie Haramijo? Why would he pay this rando $5,000 to kill this woman? Why did he need to make it look like a robbery? These were the questions that led officers to believe that Frankie wasn't simply the man who had called this hit, but was the middleman who set it up on behalf of another client. Who this buyer was became the main focus of the investigation. The only possible suspect that came to mind was Lynn's husband, Manfred Schachner. Although they were going through a very seemingly nice divorce, a divorce is still a divorce. If you're going through one and you just happen to end up murdered, it's pretty likely that the person on the other end was the one calling the hit. And when they voiced the suspicion, Frankie was quick to confirm that, yes, that had been the case. But the issue was that they couldn't prove it. Their only evidence to support this assumption was that Frankie, a criminal murderer, gave his not-so-rock-solid word on it. It ended up requiring a prolonged barrage of wiretaps, searches on phone records, reviewing of bank statements, the use of police decoys, and some pretty rock-solid undercover surveillance videos before the police were able to come up with anything substantial to prove whether or not Manfred was actually the one who called the hit. In the meantime, both Nicholas Harvey and Frankie Haramijo were convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. Eventually, police got enough evidence for them to confidently conclude that, yes, Manfred had been behind this and that Frankie was merely a middleman. The police concluded that Manfred Schachner had planned this all out. He would get help from his acquaintance, Frankie, someone he knew from his local gym, to hire a third party to take care of his wife, putting him, you know, two steps away in case the police were going to come looking. But the true, damning nature of the evidence wouldn't show up until he was brought to trial, and what a trial it would be. 
Manfred met Frankie a few years prior at an L.A. fitness in Long Beach. He became friends with Frankie and, over a period of several years, ended up loaning him a lot of money. A lot of money. He lended him over $125,000 in total in the forms of checks, direct deposits, and in cash. Frankie had told Manfred that his father was a big-time investor as well, saying that he owned a very well-off import-export business, one that he was soon to inherit, and that he owned a good number of car washes as well. Manfred was able to bond well on the topic of money. After all, he had money concerns of his own too. He was concerned that his soon-to-be ex-wife was going to clear him out of a good chunk of money by the time she was done with him, and that it was going to be coming up pretty soon. He wasn't looking forward to that. He was at the risk of splitting possibly three and a half million dollars with her. Police say that at some point he decided that it was just easier to get rid of her than even risk it. So he did. The police were able to conclude that he had paid out $50,000 to Frankie Jaramillo to find someone to do the job, who then paid $5,000 to Nicholas Harvey to do the job itself. Nicholas was a steroid-addicted bodybuilder slash criminal who attended the same gym that they did. They didn't need to look very far. When the trial finally came, Manfred was a bit cocky to say the least. He didn't think there was any chance that the prosecution would be able to prove his involvement. When he took the stand for the first time, he actually happily told the jurors that he was glad to finally be able to prove his innocence. Sitting hunched over, possibly playing up his self-proclaimed victimhood in all of this, he spoke very slowly, often trying to avoid using words like yes or no entirely. He was described as methodical in his wording, but at the same time he couldn't hold it together completely, often coming across as flustered or offended when under questioning. The couple's son was now living with a couple of members of his mom's family. When he showed up in the courtroom audience, his father never made eye contact with him. Whether this was out of guilt for killing his mother, because he wouldn't be able to keep cool, or simply out of coldness is uncertain. Manfred's brother was also in the audience along with a group of some of his other supporters. And he did make eye contact with them, even winking at his brother on occasion. Not the best look when you're at a murder trial. Under questioning performed by his own attorney, Manfred adamantly claimed that he had no involvement in this crime in the least. When asked if he had ever asked someone to kill his wife, he responded simply, I did not. When asked if he had ever so much as implied that he wanted his wife dead, he said, You know, I've been searching my mind for more than two years. To the best of my knowledge, I have never even come close to that. On top of this, he even came to assert that possibly Lynn was responsible for her own death. I was under the impression that it was robbery for jewelry, and Lynn was always wearing more than $20,000 to $25,000 worth of jewelry, he said. Obviously blown away by this assertion, the prosecutor asked him to confirm that he was accusing his dead wife of being responsible for her own murder. Responding in a matter-of-fact tone, he replied simply, I had always asked my wife not to be as flashy with her jewelry. By the end of the first day in court, not a lot had been proven by any of the questioning. Manfred wasn't really able to give a clear answer on anything, mainly throwing out some various hypotheticals and assumptions while not really giving any straightforward answers. As the trial went on, police stated their conclusion, that Manfred had paid Frankie, who then hired Nicholas to do the job. The circumstantial evidence itself was damaging enough. 
When the police came to the amount of money that Manfred had given Frankie over the years, he got pretty flustered, especially when asked as to the reasons behind it all. He firmly stated that the payments were all loans and that he expected Frankie to pay it back, obviously implying that none of the money was for any sort of payment of service. How much did he pay you back? The prosecutor, Barnes, asked. I can't tell you that precisely, Schachner responded. So she asked him again. Based on the knowledge I have now, or based on the knowledge I had when? He questioned. She simply asked the same question again for a third time. 1200 to 1500 in cash, he answered. From that point onward, Manfred asserted that Frankie was conning him, and he must have killed Lynn out of an assumption that the divorce would dry up his pool of infinite loans. It was a lot to assert on a whim when, according to Manfred, he had never considered this as a possibility before. The sheer amount of phone calls Manfred had made to Frankie was brought up. It was a number high enough to be immediately suspicious to anyone who saw the call logs. The prosecution argued that, obviously, that these had been made before, during, and after the murder. Manfred's response to this accusation was that he had a very old cell phone, a real piece of crap that had been acting up on him. It was dropping calls all the time, forcing him to make multiple calls in a short period of time. Not only that, but it would constantly dial random numbers on its own with no input on his part and he wouldn't know until much later. I made calls that I didn't make, he said. I used to carry the phone on my hip and I broke the carrier. If I hit it just right when it was on, it would make calls. Barnes asked him if he really expected them to believe that with all the money he had, even supposedly thousands of dollars in cash just lying around his home, that he would never replace his broken, inconvenient hindrance of a garbage phone. Absolutely, he responded. <laughs> the prosecution set in with more damning evidence against him. They brought up a wadded-up, semi-legible note that police had found in which Manfred had written the words Sloppy and Nick in the days after Nicholas was arrested. He stated that he made this note when he was trying to find a way to remember what the killer's name was, and that Sloppy Nick was a name that he felt like he had heard before. Just making this clear, they asked, You couldn't remember the name of the person who murdered your wife in cold blood in your backyard in the middle of the day? You had to create a nickname so that you could remember the name of the man who murdered your wife. I had a mental block with his name, and we had to create a nickname. That's what happened, he retorted. Eventually, both of the attorneys were forced to focus on what was arguably the primary source of evidence, a video that police had taken during the investigation. In this video, Manfred was seen meeting with Frankie three weeks after the murder. Frankie had been asked to wear a wire to the meeting. He hoped that, if he could get Manfred to admit to the whole thing, he'd get a lesser sentence. On the tape, Manfred never did clearly admit to having his wife killed, but he did specifically tell Frankie not to tell the police the truth about the situation. He told him that it would only result in the both of them going down, saying, the only way out is for me to get a gun and let me shoot myself. He said that he said this in fear that Frankie was going to blackmail him, or that he felt like he was trying to get him to admit to something he hadn't done. He was leading me, basically, he pleaded. Again, for clarity, Barnes read the transcript from the tape. Jaramillo said, I'm scared, Fred. I don't know. I understand you're scared too. You have to understand. We would not be in this position if it weren't for Lynn. We would not be here. 
Manfred responded, That's true, and if it hadn't been sloppy on Nick's part. Hanamijo said, You understand this. This young man's going to be doing time because of you. Schachner responded, Yep. Barnes inquired as to why exactly he referred to Nicholas as sloppy. He killed my wife for no reason whatsoever, he responded. Barnes then asked why he told Haramijo to give Harvey's family money. I don't know, Schnockner responded. Manfred's business card was also found in Nicholas's wallet, and on the back was written the first name of each person in the Schnockner family and their addresses. When asked why Nicholas would have this, Manfred said that it was because he loaned Frankie a bunch of money for his upcoming wedding in April, and he had written the list of names and addresses so that everyone in his family could get a wedding invitation. He was then asked if he even knew Nicholas was at the wedding. I don't know, he answered. In closing, the prosecution asserted that Manfred simply had his wife killed because he wanted to keep her from getting millions in their upcoming divorce. Manfred and his defense's counter-argument was that they had already divided up all of their assets, and he had, of his own volition, given her a pretty generous chunk of change. Just as one last F.U., Manfred decided to suggest that the police should have stopped his wife from being killed on the day she was stabbed. That it was their fault. Had they followed proper procedures, my wife would be alive today, he said. He then went on to complain about lacking medical treatment while behind bars. He was sentenced to life in prison without parole. It wasn't really a hard decision. You, sir, are a disgusting human being and you deserve every single day that you are going to serve in this case, the judge told him. Years down the road in 2018, Manfred Schachner attempted to appeal his sentencing but the justices were not having it. In a long, scathing, seven-page ruling, they said, Schachner's record of conviction unquestionably established that he was convicted of first degree, as an aider and an abetter, a ground that remains valid. Manfred Schachner is now in his early 80s, and it looks like he'll be living the remainder of his life in prison, which probably won't be very long without any of his money by his side. Once again, this has been your host, Kyle. Thank you very much for listening to today's podcast episode. Feel free to look through my huge library of other stories if you found this one interesting, and be sure to be there for the next stories that come out each and every week. Have a good night.